Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I am happy to announce that I am reviewing Stephen King's latest novel, his newest publication, The Outsider, which was published on May 22nd, 2018. As I'm recording this, um, it is June 2nd. So I, while reading this, I, I, I had to balance the, the rush to get through it, to get this episode out. At the same time, I wanted to savor every single um, moment that I had with this book and the story and these characters. Um, so um, here I am, and I'm happy to be here, and I hope that you guys uh, enjoy this episode. For those of you who have not finished The Outsider, I would say wait until you finish The Outsider before reading <clears throat> or listening to uh, this episode. And I don't really want to give too much information away so early in my review, but if you haven't read the three books of the Mr. Mercedes trilogy, I would say you need to actually read those before you read The Outsider. I strongly encourage it, and if you have not read uh, Mr. Mercedes, Finders Keepers, and End of Watch, I would not listen to this review going forward. I would say that there are four books that you would need to read. Uh, the three Mercedes books, and then The Outsider in order for you to be able to truly appreciate what King is doing with The Outsider. And I'll just say that for now without getting into too many spoilers. So this was a book that I was really looking forward to. Um, I mean, I look forward to every Stephen King book, but in leading up to the, the release date, I just found myself you know, just thinking, okay, you know, it's it's late spring, summer's on its way. I mean, this is a perfect time to just sit down and read a good Stephen King book. And, you know, the days were approaching, the days were approaching. And then I realized, you know, the, the day of, I looked at the, the weather forecast and it was going to be rainy. And we're supposed to have rain and some thunderstorms the night of. And I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate uh, Stephen King's new book. And I ran out of work after school and I grabbed my daughter and she and I went to the bookstore, and she loves Barnes & Noble, which means that I'm, I don't know if I'm doing everything right, but I'm doing one thing right. And uh, yeah, I got my book. We got a book for her. Um, and I just, it's one of those things where outside of the book, the, the, the life experience, you know, helps shape the in-book experience as well. So it, it just really contextualized um, my experience for how I began reading uh, The Outsider. And reading it that night, I, I was hooked right away, as I'll get into. Um, but one of the reasons why I was so interested in reading The Outsider is because this is a term and a concept that King has been exploring for decades. I mean, we have heard um, him refer to The Outsider um, and have applied this term to many of his most famous villains, It, Flag. I mean, Flag was described as coming from the outside. Um, there is something called the Outsider, spoiler alert, for Bag of Bones that shows up at the, the, the end of the Bag of Bones. Um, so I don't feel, and I didn't feel going into this, that this would be the, the explanation uh, for the Outsider um, and, and why he uses this term. I, I didn't believe that this would, that, that he was thinking about all these years, the fact that he's used this term throughout different books with no linkage or relation. I just think that he has been fascinated with the concept of something coming 
from the outside. And as I have stated as far back as my first episode of, of Carrie, King has built his works with the, the belief that only until you rely on the others around you are you able to find your best self and overcome whatever challenge awaits you. So whether it's called community, whether it's called katet, um, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's the belief in opening yourself up and letting you work with the others around you and finding strength in whether it be a group of friends or family. Um, that is what Stephen King believes in. And the concept of the outsider is the antithesis to that. It is the antithesis of the katet. It's something that exists outside of your circle, something that exists outside of a shared belief in a common good. It is an alien concept for those that believe in supporting one another and believing in one another and allowing yourself to be open to one another. The outsider uh, represents everything that is selfish and vile, self-serving, and wrong, um, and its its existence, whether it be in this book, whether it be in it, whether it be in the stand, whether it be in bag of bones, um, its existence threatens um, the idea of community, of trust, of society. And as we get into this book, um, taking place in a small, not a small town, a small city. Um, you know, we see what happens when the concept of the outsider is applied to a town where there is a set reality um, and, and a belief in the systems in place and what happens when the outsider disrupts that. And we see it like um, a ripple effect, uh, just reverberate uh, and disrupt everything throughout this town. So, I mean, that is just a microcosm for a larger society. And as I'll get into, and I'm going to be very honest, um, this novel was written in 2017 to 2018. It was published in 2018. Stephen King has always been um, an outspoken liberal. Um, I believe that this novel is shaped by his, um, his liberal beliefs um, because there are some choices that he makes um, in the setting, in the characters that um, speaks to how we as a society at the moment view the outsiders. And it comes across as both a um, parable and a satire, um, all the while being a very earnest um, both crime and horror stories. So Stephen King is juggling a lot um, of genres and concepts and tones um, and, and themes in this novel. But because he is the king at what he does, he does this extremely well. So for all of the reasons that I just listed and the many more reasons to come, I really enjoyed my time spent with The Outsider, and I am looking forward to diving in deep and uh, splashing around in these waters uh, for the next hour or so. So um, before we get any further, I just want to read some iTunes reviews because as you know, guys, I can't do it without you and I can't do it without your thoughts and your support um, on iTunes. Uh, so if you have a few minutes on your hands, uh, please do as these constant listeners have done and just 
leave a review on iTunes. It will really, really help me out. I'm currently the highest rated Stephen King podcast. It would be cool if I got to stay that way. Um, and the only way that's going to happen is if, um, if you guys are able to help me out with that. So I have a couple reviews that I'd like to read. Um, this one is from Dandy Duke 25 who writes, uh, seriously, guys, this is everything you're looking for in a Stephen King-related podcast. I also love how he talks about Joe Hill and Stranger Things. This man loves the things that you love as much as you do, plus he is hilarious and swears the perfect amount. So thank you, Dandy Duke 25 um, So if you are a fan of Joe Hill, then uh, buckle up because we will be talking about Lock and Key uh, later this summer, um, Lock and Key, the comic book written by Joe Hill and illustrated by Gabriel Rodriguez, soon to be a Netflix television show, and I am very, very excited about that. And then we have from um, Kim DLM, who wrote uh, for Readers and Writers. This is one of my favorite podcasts. I'll keep this short because you can read the rest of the reviews to see how wonderful it is for a fan. It is also great for aspiring writers because the critiques will make you look at your own work with a new eye. Finally, I rated it a 5 because there was no way I was going to go down to a 4, but it's actually a 4.5 because there are two minor things that bother me. One, the music during a summary can be a little loud and distracting. Two, sometimes the host takes a long time to get to the meat of the review. You can always just skip ahead if that's what you're looking for. Uh, maybe timestamps would help. The back catalog will keep you entertained for hours. So Kim DLM, thank you so much for writing in. And then we have um, from KingCast Fan, an incredible podcast. The five-star rating scale does not do this podcast justice. It is beyond incredible and dives deep into the works of the greatest author of all time. The host is extremely likable and the content is top-notch. I can't stress enough how highly I recommend this podcast to anyone who is a fan of kings or literature in general. Anyways, I just wanted to voice my support for what I see as the greatest podcast in existence. Thank you, KingCast Fan. Then we have Matt in Richmond, informative, charming, and fun. This is a great podcast. The host examines the work of King with a fond yet critical eye. His discussions have reawakened my love of King as I've gone back to reread some of my favorites and picked up some that I missed along the way. An added bonus, his music choices are great and sometimes hilarious. Couldn't recommend higher. Then we have Mi Jin Yu, who writes, Love the reviews of both the films and books and comparisons or lack between them. Thank you very much. And then lastly, we have Surf Monkey, who writes, uh, Constant Reader does a great job of reviewing and commenting on all of Stephen King's works, novels, short story collections, and film and television adaptations. I find that I agree with almost all of his insights and opinions. Plus, he is a big Twin Peaks and David Lynch fan, as I am myself. Make sure to also check out his other podcast, Hanging with Agent Cooper. Both podcasts offer very good quality audio, which I especially appreciate as I listen to podcasts all day on mono Bluetooth headset while I work. My only criticism, and it's not a big one, more of an entertainment character quirk, or maybe it's a local dialect thing, it's a local dialect thing, is that Constant Reader has trouble pronouncing words that end in T, followed by E-N or on, i.e. pronouncing written as written, Norton as Norton, and Button as Button. Like I said, it's not a big deal. It just makes me chuckle each time, and when you hear it once, you can't ignore it. Other than that, Constant Reader is well-spoken and enunciates well. Great podcast, definitely worthy of five stars. Keep up the good work, Constant Reader. Um, so thanks, guys. Thank you, all, you know, so much for all of your support. Like I said, and I'll say it again, time and time again, I can't do it without you. I wouldn't want to do it without you, and 
you know, just sharing our thoughts together um, is very, very important, which is also why I would love um, if you guys have a few moments on your hands to, um, you know, send me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com, you know, on any of Stephen King's works, on any thoughts that you might have, like the one from Poppy Gooch, who, spoiler alert for it, um, writes, I finished reading it a few days ago after about three months. A long time, I know, but I am busy revising for my end of the end of high school exams, and I was looking for a podcast with the novel as the main topic. I absolutely loved your insight, and I've already subscribed. I know it's a few Twin Peaks episodes, which I will be listening to next. I completely agree on almost every level, and I think that you made some pretty obscure points that I wouldn't have otherwise thought about. I also have the same strong repulsion for the child sex scene. I feel like King wrote it in an almost erotic manner, which is completely inappropriate. The only thing I disagree with is where you stated that you could have happily seen Patrick's death scene and character exploration cut. That was one of my absolute favorite parts of the book, and although it didn't directly contribute to the plot, Patrick was another morbid example of the powers Derry can have on an already psychotic person. Also, I don't actually get on well with the characters of Ben and Bev. Might be a personal thing, but I find them soft and irritating. The book is also lacking in female characters that just aren't plot devices or simpering plot ruiners. But other than that, it's been my absolute favorite book so far, and I'm glad I got to read it at 15 years old when I can still relate to child, childhood um, naivety in some way. Nativity? Na- Why can't I pronounce that word anymore? Um, naivete? So, Poppy Gooch, uh, thank you for writing in. I don't remember about the Patrick Hockstetter criticism. I don't know if I found that it was on, maybe, I don't know. I enjoyed it too. I think I did. I don't know what I said in my review, but I, I just felt that the inclusion could have been cut to trim some fat. I think that's what I said. And then um, he also writes, um, I might be late to this theory, but I was reflecting on the last part of It, the book, and I think the other um, might be Bill's father. Um, in the sewer confrontation when they're children, Bill says he hears the voice of his father instructing him to do something. In the adult confrontation, he hears a voice say, son, you did real good. Um, that's an interesting thought. I don't know. I, I, I would really need to reread that um, to get really any thought because I, I don't have any, any true um, remembrance of that. So I would need to reread the book. Um, but that's... That's interesting. So I'm going to throw it out to all of you. Um, if you have any thoughts on 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 that, um, you know, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So then I also want to read a, an email from Bryant. I'm going to skip a part. I'm going to summarize for him. But Bryant has been a um, long-term uh, Stephen King a Stephen Kingcast fan. Um, and he wrote, uh, Hi, CR. I just listened to the new episode earlier tonight. And I just want to say that I did so while at work on a while at work on a night that, um, well, let me back up for a second. It's a Monday night as I'm typing this. I've just gotten home from work. The night before um, was bad. It was a lousy, miserable night at work. Um, Nothing serious, um, but it was stressful to say the least. Um, And then I'm to, to, um, you know, honor his wishes. I'm not going to read the specifics, but I just want to say Bryant did not have a good night, um, and he, all he wanted to do was listen to the the new episode that had come out, but he wasn't able to do so. So it, he was able to listen to it the following night. So on Monday night, I had more of a typical night, and as I was going about my business, I listened my way through the episode. I'd been feeling out of sorts and just kind of hollowed out, but hearing the new episode of the Stephen King cast perked me up 
You're a podcast listener, so you know what I mean when I say this next bit. Hearing an episode of a favorite podcast is, in some ways, like having a friend come hang out with you and put your arm around your shoulder. It struck me at just the right way, at just the right time, and I sat there and I got legit teary-eyed. But that's in a good way. That's the Stephen King cast, and I thank you for it. Bryant. P.S. I won't be actively listening to Hanging with Agent Cooper. Uh, nice double entendre there. Um, uh, on account of never having watched Twin Peaks, but I will almost definitely be subscribing on iTunes and archiving the episodes so that when I do dive into that series and make it up to the newest season, I'll be able to use your podcast as a supplement. There's a thing that 100% is going to happen. Not sure when, but before 29 gets here, I hope. So, Brian, thank you for your support, and just thank you for for being a longtime listener. Um, And I'm glad that I could help out uh, in such a small way, Um, but I know exactly how you feel. Um, I'm a podcast addict, and I I just know the rush that you get when a favorite podcast um, pops up in your feed. So um, that's, guys, at this point, this is why I do it, Um, you know, because uh, I I know the feeling, and for me to be able to give back just a little bit, that's that's sometimes all we can do in this world, right? Um, it's It's an angry world out there right now, so do what you can to just give a little bit of good. Okay, guys. So if you have any thoughts that you want to share, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And so what I'm going to do now with the emails out of the way, with the iTunes reviews out of the way, um, I want to review Stephen King's The Outsider. So I don't have a Wikipedia summary because it is so fresh and no one has written a Wikipedia um, summary yet. So I'm going to just dive into the review itself. So the novel is broken up into different segments beginning with the arrest on July 14th. So right away, the king that we know and love is fully on display. He creates the mystery and the power of the police to the reader. Describing them as he would dark and shadowy figures, the effect reinforced through the perspective of two young black children who have a different and more complicated relationship with the police. Now, for anyone already getting frustrated with the political take, please, guys, okay, um, because I I do try to respectful, I, I do try and be respectful, and I know that some people don't read Stephen King for the political commentary, but he bases his his works in the, a recognizable world, and he is coming to it from a from a very perspective lens. Um, so I, I am not imposing my beliefs, um, but what I'm doing is extricating King's intent, um, because here it's clear. I mean, he references Black Lives Matter in the very very first paragraph, um, and also by setting this in a location named Flint City, I mean he's connoting the real world racial catastrophe in Flint, Michigan. From the standpoint of the author's purpose, by framing the introduction of cops in this way, those who serve and protect um, through a shadowy and mysterious lens, he's foreshadowing the upcoming conflicts and theme of the novel that the people who we're supposed to trust could truly be our most dangerous monsters. It's not only meant to simulate the tension of a black child in the presence of the police, but it's meant to disorient the reader and have us question our pre-established notion of good and evil. Okay, now on to paragraph two. 
King immediately grabs us by the throat and squeezes. After the brief intro of the boys and the cops, he jumps back four days to the transcript of a police interview whose discussion slowly and tensely builds, the reader leaning in and wondering what Mr. John Ritz and his beagle discovered during their post-dinner walk. Again, King breathes so much life into this character, establishing him as someone who is currently um, a bit nervous, probably a little bit bloviating, and insightful with lines like, kids think adults don't know what they say, that we don't listen, but we do. At least some of us do. And um, through the very nature of the transcript, we learn that Mr. Ritz is safe. King still makes you worry when he recounts the sensation of being watched by the killer in the trees in the moment before he discovers the violated corpse of the child. With the uh, revelation established, King moves back to the present to introduce us to the police in the car, specifically Ralph Anderson, who is about to pounce on his prey. King teases us with juicy bits. For Ralph, it's personal. Whoever they're about to arrest is clearly, according to the DA, the killer. And just before the mystery gets a bit tedious, King slams it into the next gear and hits the pedal. When he tells the other officer to make the arrest, Ralph also provides his justification. The man who raped Frankie Peterson with a tree branch and tore open his throat coached my son for four years. He had his hands on my son, showing him how to hold a bat, and I don't trust myself. Just as the police encircle their suspect, King again flashes back, this time to another interview, with a witness who provides the identity of the driver of the white van seen first by by the first witness, the suspect being Coach T, Terry Maitland. King then pivots to our suspected villain, Coach T himself. It's not hard to imagine what King was um, that, that King was watching a baseball game from the stands and posited one of his classic what ifs. What if police rush the field to arrest the coach with players joining the spectators as witnesses to the event? It plays out both cinematically and mundane. The setting is something recognizable. You can place yourself there. Who hasn't seen a baseball field? And yet, the description to the excited murmur, to the dead silence as Anderson faces off against Terry, it's a huge moment that seems built for the big screen. Leading up to it, King teases something is wrong, both as a foreshadowing device, but also to tip us off that something might not be right with Terry. But even still, King paints him as someone who is floored by the allegations, but level-headed enough to be able to continue to coach his team even when he's being arrested. And he never forgets to include the details, like how the police car smelled like Mexican food. King placed us firmly in Terry's world, experiencing the, the, the disorientation, the shock, and ultimately the rage of betrayal from a man that he'd trusted. And you can understand all of it. King continues to present the situation from every perspective possible. Terry, Ralph, um, who has sure as he thought he'd been, uh, the witnesses, Marcy, Terry's wife, whose rage matches her husband and ruthlessness. And the police station, Terry baits Ralph into a master's class guilt trip. It's a dangerous moment for Terry. For a second, you think that by mentioning Ralph's son will cause Ralph to assault him. And then you think that by talking about the, the children at all will cause him to look guilty. But in the end, Terry shows how much of a difference he's made in children's lives and he shoves it in Ralph's face. Ralph might like to think that it didn't get to him, but it does, and the uncertainty of some elements of the case begin to bubble up. Terry's seeming lack of recognition to the witnesses, who he'd have known, the coke nail, the lack of familiarity with the town itself. It doesn't matter. 
when Terry provides his al- I'm sorry, it doesn't help when Terry provides his alibi, which is an incredible moment and adds so much uncertainty to the events. Despite the clear eyewitness account that puts him at the scene of the crime, Terry has an ironclad alibi out of town with colleagues. King concludes this section with the formal arrest of Terry Maitland, and we head into the next section completely uncertain of what had occurred the evening of the murder and what will happen next, which leads us to our next chapter. Sorry, July 14th to July 15th. King uses the natural break as an opportunity to introduce us to Alec Pelly, former detective and current private investigator for Howie Gold. And immediately, he's characterized as being a quick-thinking, decent man. And so is Ralph Anderson. Kinsey could have, um, King could have easily painted him as a gung-ho, bullheaded villain, but he doesn't. He takes the time to humanize him with wonderful observations about life the only way that he can. The door opened and Jeanette came out wrapped in her housecoat. In the spill of the light from the kitchen, he saw that she was wearing the bunny slippers he'd given her as a joke present on her last birthday. The real present had been a trip to Key West, just the two of them, and they'd had a great time, but now it was just a blurry remnant in his mind, the way all vacations were later on, things with no more substance than the aftertaste of candy floss. The joke slippers were the things that had lasted, pink slippers from the dollar store with their ridiculous little eyes and their comical floppy ears. Seeing her in them made his eyes sting. He felt as if he had aged 20 years since stepping into that clearing at Figgis Park and viewing the bloody ruin that had been a little boy who probably idolized Batman and Superman. King's strength has always been his characters. Beginning with small-town horror, he populated his settings with memorable um, and fleshed-out townsfolk. After crafting a high school drama with believable characters, he expanded his scope with Salem's Lot, leaving no stone in the small town unturned. After an intimate examination of a family with The Shining, he challenged himself by writing a novel whose characters spanned the entirety of the United States and the post-apocalypse. In the years, King has given us memorable characters, unforgettable moments, and keen observations into life using his characters as a vehicle for universal commentary. I say all of this because he is taking his knack for character development and turning it to the crime genre. Right now in our society, crime fiction has never been higher. Making a Murderer, Serial, Evil Genius, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and podcasts like Sword and Scale, My Favorite Murder. We see murders occur in the real world and in our fiction regularly. But under King's hand, he has colored every facet of the aftermath, whether it be the suspect, the cop, the private investigator, and in a truly, truly heartbreaking sequence that is as tender as it is tragic, the family of the victim, the Petersons. It's a quick scene. It doesn't have to be longer. But he shows us the aftermath of a wake, the broken pieces of the family, and the middle-aged love that still burns with young adult fire deep within the routines, wrinkles, familiarity, and weight gain that the decades have brought. So when the mother of the deceased boy, Arlene, drops dead of a heart attack, the sequence brought to us through the husband's eyes is one of deep love and epic tragedy that this too will be taken from him. It's an incredible chapter, a beautifully rendered sequence that shows that King is still on top of his game. Just when we begin to settle in on what we think is going to be a revolving door of check-ins with our pre-existing characters, King throws a wrinkle and a wrench into it um, with the introduction of Merle Cassidy, a throwaway character that we don't see again after this. 
But Merle Cassidy, short for Merlin, is a 12-year-old car thief from New York and on the run from an abusive stepfather that starts to put pieces together that will wind up paying off later um, in, in the story. Then after some more check-ins, the section concludes with a lawyerless confrontation between Ralph and Terry. Ralph has come to ask Terry point-blank if he had murdered the boy, and despite his denial and the apparent proof that he was in a different city at the time of the murder, Ralph is not convinced. Which brings us to the arraignment, July 16th. With just under 200 pages, King knows it's time to ramp it up, which he does in, th- in a thrilling, horrifying clusterfuck of a scene in which the authorities bring Terry to the arraignment. But because of the bloodlust of the city folk, it's an unorganized lynch mob that's waiting for Terry, and it's cringeworthy how it all goes to hell, culminating with Ollie, the lone surviving child of the now decimated Peterson clan, as he attempts to shoot Terry, forcing Ralph to execute him. One thing that King does well, and always has, is to show the chaos of gunfire as he did in a memorable sequence in The Stand, and he does so here, with Ollie firing wildly, hitting innocent bystanders, and Ralph unable to get a shot until the moment that he can, and the impact um, is instantaneous and brutal. What's worse, what's truly tragic, is the unnecessary death of an innocent man who had been ground up in the teeth of the system. Terry is fatally wounded, and it's with his dying breath that he continues to declare his innocence. Though Ollie might have pulled the trigger, it was Ralph and Bill Samuels who loaded that gun, rushing in to a presumption of guilt and the arrest at the baseball field. Their actions have consequences, which have resulted with the murder of an innocent man, his legacy tarnished, his wife a widow, and his daughters without a father. It is a truly brutal sequence because at this point you think that the story is going to be the redemption of terry and how he's going to get out of this so i mean not even halfway through the book king pulls the rug out of our feet and says no that's not the story that you think that you were reading you're not going to read the redemption of this man he's not getting out of it this is some i don't want to say that it's george r R. martin's territory here um, but george r R. martin really has um popularized it um, and, and, and taken, you know, the, the spotlight. I mean, King has been doing this, this stuff for, for years. Um, some of our most beloved characters have, have been um, executed before our very eyes in heartbreaking fashion. But um, something like this, pulling our main character off of the, the stage before um, the, the main character is able to um, engage in acts two and three of what we thought was his own story that has been popularized in Game of Thrones. Um, and it's, it's a very, very effective way of telling a story. And we are as lost and unsure of what will happen next as our characters are. Which brings us to Footsteps in Cantaloupe, July 18th to July 20th. Bill and Ralph get into it in Ralph's backyard, Ralph feeling the weight of his actions and the previous actions that had led to this moment. Bill still believes that Terry was guilty and that everything that transpired had less to do with their actions, but his natural fallout from the actions of the suspects. It's a fascinating conversation, each man armed with a metaphor that hammers in their beliefs, and though they had been painted as the supposed villains of the piece so far, there's still lawmen who truly believe that what they had been doing wasn't just to uphold the law, but to bring moral justice to a monster. 
At this point, they appear wrong, but at their core, they wanted to bring down a killer. Meaning that despite the fact that their actions have caused deaths, injuries, and ruined lives, King still paints them in a sympathetic light. Now, until this point, the circumstance and conflict of Terry Maitland somehow managing to be in two places at once had supernatural tones, but when we check back in with his family, King starts to pivot to the genre that made him a household name, as Marcy is awoken to the screams of her daughters, one of whom swears she saw a man with a lumpy face and straws for eyes watching them through the window. And the possibility is discussed between Ralph and his wife, Jeanette, which is good to see. It means that the characters are willing to acknowledge that if something can't be explained through natural means, then possibly it could be explained through supernatural means. And because King is a writer in his later years, his view on the supernatural comes with the stark reality of the natural itself. The inexplicable, she said. So my question to you is pretty simple. What if the only answer to the riddle of the two Terrys is supernatural? He didn't laugh. He had no urge to laugh. It was too late at night for laughter, or too early in the morning. Too something, anyway. I don't believe in the supernatural. Not ghosts, not angels, not the divinity of Jesus Christ. I go to church, sure, but only because it's a peaceful place where I can sometimes listen to myself. Also because it's the expected thing. I had an idea that's why you went, too. Or because of Derek. I would like to believe in God, she said, because I don't want to believe that we just end, even though it balances the equation. Since we came from blackness, it seems logical to assume that it's to blackness that we return. But I believe in the stars and the infinity of the universe. That's our great out there. Sorry, that's the great out there. Down here, I believe there are more universes in every fistful of sand because infinity is a two-way street. I believe there's another dozen thoughts in my head lined up behind each one I'm aware of. I believe my consciousness and my unconscious, even though I don't know what those things are. And I believe in A. Conan Doyle, who had Sherlock Holmes say, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. King continues to build a sinister and captivating mystery. What's really going on? Ralph even though he's on administrative leave, continues to work the case, piecing together the fact that the van had been stolen in Dayton, Ohio, which is a town that Terry had said that he'd visited. The mysteries deepen with the discovery of clothes in an old barn, clothes linked to the description of what Terry had been seen wearing the night of the murder, and King turns up the creep factor by describing that the clothes are covered in a strange substance um, that seemed to turn the hay black. Ralph continues his redemption by meeting with Marcy, Howie, and Alec to determine if there's any connection to the van from Dayton with the family vacation the Matlins had taken. Throughout the course of the conversation, King drops one bit of information that echoes with familiarity. Terry received a cut while visiting, possibly from an orderly's fingernail. This is now the second time that King has brought up fingernails cutting someone else's skin as one of the witnesses, Claude, detailed how that he had thought Terry had a coke nail that had scratched his hand when he shook it. To solidify that point, King shakes off the mystery genre entirely and doubles down on the classic King spookiness with a moment in which Jack, a police detective, is preyed upon by whatever the creature is. Empty buildings, windy night, and shadows coming to life. It could all be in his head, 
but the detail of the fingers across the back of his neck seal the deal that the supernatural is firmly in play. Yellow, July 21st to July 22nd. The real hero of the story might be Jeannie, Ralph's wife, who is the only character who understands that she's living in a Stephen King novel. She was the one who first brought up the supernatural as the only logical answer to an illogical problem. And here she doubles down. Ralph is sorting through footage of the courthouse shooting and attempting to find a man he'd sworn he'd seen. But despite knowing where the man had been standing, the footage shows an empty space. Jeannie isn't having it and thinks they might be dealing with some sort of vampire which explained why he'd been wearing a t-shirt over his head and why his features weren't picked up by the camera. We're now halfway through the book, and though it started off as a murder mystery, it has shape-shifted into a more recognizable horror story. The quartet of Ralph, Jeannie, Uni, Alec, Howie have gathered together to explore dark possibilities, and their collaboration has such significance King firmly tips us into the supernatural as the novel's boogeyman responds by visiting Grace, Terry's daughter, to give a warning to Ralph. It's a supernatural game of cat and mouse. The last time King told a story of cat and mouse, it was in the Mercedes trilogy. Even though he'd explored failed detectives attempting to solve a supernaturally based murder, it was still a shock to see King reintroduce not just one of the characters from his crime trilogy, but one of his most beloved characters of all time, Holly Dibney. I thought that when Alec reached out to Finders Keepers, it would be a fun little cameo, the kind of Easter eggs that King was most famous for. But instead, what could have been a fun little reference turns out to be a more significant development, as this section concludes with the next section's title, which must have put a smile on King's face. It certainly put a smile on mine. Holly. July 22nd to July 24th. This isn't just a cameo. It's a continued examination of the character following the events of End of Watch. Spoiler alert for that book, guys. Seriously. But you should not read or li- you should not read The Outsider or you should not listen to the rest of this um, podcast without reading the Mercedes trilogy. In the end, Bill died. And in this novel, it doesn't introduce a Holly that's having an easy time with that death. Now, if you're a Bill Hodges fan and you miss that journey um, from that trilogy, then Mourning with Holly might be therapeutic here. Now, guys, I have long been on record not being a Bill Hodges fan originally. But as you're going to find out, once I get into my thorough review of DirecTV's Mr. Mercedes adaptation by the combination of David E. Kelly and Jack Bender, um, and Dennis Lehane. That's a powerhouse starring Brendan Gleeson. What the creators were able to do um, in an adaptation made me retroactively question my criticisms of uh, the Mercedes trilogy. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting into my thoughts of the adaptation because when I went back and watched them this past April... I really, really enjoyed the story, and I really enjoyed spending time with these characters, and I really look forward to seeing what DirecTV um, and Bender and David E. Kelly and Dennis Lehane are able to bring to us for season two. I'm very, very excited, um, and I was so happy to see Holly um, Gibney return here because she is such... A great character, um, and she's someone that 
Stephen King fans have really, really grown to love over the last ah, five or so years that she's been around. Um, so, I mean, seeing her here was a shock, um, but, um, but it was a welcome shock. And I was very, very excited because King doesn't, I'm trying to think here, like, I mean, he's always made references and he's always had Easter eggs, but very rarely does he do something like this. I mean, I think the closest example would be probably Alan Pangborn, um, you know, being a supporting character in Dark Half to becoming the main character of Needful Things. Um, you know, very rarely does he actually sequelize his books um, in a non-sequel traditional form. I mean, he's done it with, um, you know, the Talisman, he's done it with Dr. Sleep, but crossing over, um, even though he populates all of his characters in, in, in um, concentric ringed worlds, um, we don't see a, a, like a passing of the baton like this. And it was just great. It was great and it felt natural, which was even better. So furthermore, we get to see Holly's naturally inclined detective mind at work. Holly works the case with her innate skills and the ones shaped by the time spent with her mentor and friend, Bill Hodges. And it's a lot of fun to watch. After all, this is a character who has essentially been tasked with having to determine the veracity of supernatural activity. It's not an easy job, but it's one that she tackles without complaint. She gathers enough information in a short amount of time to conclude what we've wanted Anderson to accept, that somehow something has been impersonating these men, using their identities to murder innocent children and destroy both families and communities in the process. And King continues to show his love of Holly, not by just having her um, bring Anderson to this conclusion, but providing the title of the book itself. You really don't believe Terry killed... The Peterson boy? No more than I think Heath Holmes killed those two girls, she said. I think it was someone else. I think it was an outsider. And King continues to surprise us, not letting Holly watch from the sidelines. Instead, he knows how much his fans love this character and isn't content with her being a supporting character in someone else's book. If Holly is going to be in this novel, then Holly is going to be in this novel. And that's why it's so thrilling when the chapter concludes with Holly boarding a plane and heading to join the rest of this growing quartet. Visits, June 25th. Jack, our surly, unheroic detective who is the recipient of the outsider's touch, is visited by the outsider in his bathroom. It's King going full King here with spooky fun creepiness and our villain turning Jack into his lackey. He makes a threatening visit to Anderson's house, giving Jeanette an ultimatum. Ralph must stop or he will kill them all. We are more than halfway through, and when the outsider is beginning to step out of the shadows, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. And if at this point I'm less detailed in my commentary, it's because I'm too interested in reading to stop and take notes at every page. But the investigation continues, with Anderson and his men investigating the lead revolving around the fact that his midnight intruder matches the description of the strip club bouncer who, by the way, had been cut by the coke nail of the man he had thought had been Terry Maitland. 
Macy's tells Gimbel's July 25th. After a rich segment in which Holly stalks the outsider's old killing ground, she arrives at the gathering of the Quartet, and when she lays eyes on Ralph, she is reminded of Bill. King has always written of twinners and foils, and though Ralph isn't the twinner of uh, Bill the way that twinners work in the talisman, the fact that he is an echo of her former friend fits perfectly with the tropes that King has been writing for years, and more so, it fits perfectly with the thrust of this novel— one of doubles. The chapter is devoted to the true birth of the Cotet, who assemble in Howie's office to go over all of the facts, with each uh, taking a turn to review their part of the investigation. Anyway, um, it's Holly's turn, and she lays it out there, stating her case for the identity of the outsider a monster lying in Mexican folklore. Um, El Cuco is the name. So beginning on page 381, Holly says, and I'll get there. Um, Holly says, yes, he's known in Spain as El Hombre San Con Consaco, the man with the sack. In Portugal, he's Pumpkinhead. When American children carve pumpkins for Halloween, they're carving the likeness of El Cuco, just as children did hundreds of years ago in Iberia. There was a rhyme about El Cuco, Yune said. Abuela used to sing it sometimes at night. Duermate, niño, duermate ya. Can't remember the rest. Sleep, child, sleep, Holly said. El Cuco's on the ceiling. He's come to eat you. Good bedtime rhyme, Alec commented. Must have given the kids sweet dreams. Jesus, Marcy whispered. You think something like that was in our house? Sitting on my daughter's bed? And then Holly puts on the movie that um, A, speaks to uh, you know, her character trait of, of being a cinephile, um, but also you know, teaching the, the quartet what they need to know about combating this, this evil. And then we have No End to the Universe, uh, July 26th. King continues to make the most of the time that he has with Holly. With just over 100 pages left, he doesn't have much more of an opportunity to, to spend with her. But he takes advantage by having her bond with Ralph, her stand-in for Bill. And though he might be dead, King isn't quite done with Bill either. Though he doesn't have to, he takes the time to give Bill some peace in the moments before his death. And we get this. She spoke without looking at either of them now, looking off into the distance, Bill was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer the same time the business with Babineau and Hartsfield happened. He was in the hospital for a while afterwards, but then he came home. By that time, all of us knew how it was going to end, including him, although he never said so, and he fraught that fracking cancer right to the finish. I used to go over almost every night, partly to make sure he was eating something, partly just to sit with him, to keep him company, but also to, I don't know, fill yourself up with him, Jeannie said, while you still had him. The smile again, the radiant one that made her look young. Yes, that's it, exactly. One night, this wasn't long before he went back into the hospital, the power went out in this part of town. A tree fell on the line or something. When I got to Bill's house, he was sitting on the front step and looking up at the stars. You never see him like this when the streetlights are on, he said. Look at how many there are and how bright. It seemed like you could see the whole Milky Way that night. We sat there for a little while, five minutes, I guess, not talking, just looking. Then he said, scientists are starting to believe that there's no end to the universe. 
I read that in the New York Times last week. And when you can see all the stars there are to be seen and know there's even more beyond them, it's easy to believe. We never talked much about Brady Hartsfield and what he did to Babineau after Bill got really sick, but I think he was talking about it then. More things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Jeannie said. Holly smiled. I guess Shakespeare said it best. He said everything pretty much the best, I think. Um, but just that moment, um, I, I found it just a nice moment to spend with Bill, um, musing on his mortality and the vastness and mysteries of this universe. Then we have Bienvenidos a Tejas, July 26. Our characters head off to confront their monster, while the monster applies the pressure to his human lackey, Jack Hoskins, to eliminate the threat before the threat can do some damage. Having this wild card flit through the novel is such a great idea. He's being pushed along by a supernatural entity. While we can't relate to that, we can recognize the very human grudge he has toward Ralph Anderson, another reason that King's books shine as well as they do. Just like Buster Keaton, the character from Needful Things. Sure, he had been used and abused by Leland Gaunt, but that wasn't why the character popped. It was because he was a hot-tempered, narcissistic, egomaniac without any self-esteem, and that is recognizable. Look, this note isn't significant, but it shows that why King is King. Okay, this is what I'm about to talk about next. Claude Bolton, the character that the um, outsider is impersonating at the moment, returns with dinner and states that he got mashed potatoes because reheated French fries, forget about it. And I just, it just put a smile on my face because people, I don't know, I mean, it's so recognizable, it's relatable, it's a frustration that I have that we exist in 2018 and still cannot, for whatever reason, seem to be able to reheat French fries um, and without screwing up the taste of French fries. What is it? Why are French fries such a magical piece of food that they pretty much are the only thing in existence that you cannot put in a microwave um, and I know that you can pop them in the oven, but still, even then, it, it doesn't work. I mean, it's just when French fries come out of the fry later, you have 15 minutes to eat them. And if you miss that 15-minute window, they're done. And that's fascinating to me. And I love how Stephen King recognizes that. Claude's mother then tells an extended tale of the local cave, which had followed, followed, fallen in on Claude's family members. And with it being a makeshift graveyard, it will be where the outsider is hiding. The characters attempt to come up with a plan that both keeps Claude close yet far enough away so the outsider can't be clued into what the quartet has in store. Meanwhile, the outsider's human lackey, Jack, is waiting in the wings to throw a wrench into whatever plans they might have. With 100 pages to go... Um, the novel has steered so far away from where it began, there is no clear way to figure out exactly where the story is going to end up. And then we have the Marysville Hole on July 27th. On the urging of Holly, Ralph steps up to the role of Din of this quartet and tells them that they all need to accept the impossibility of the outsider. The only way they're going to defeat it is by believing in it, its abilities, and its weaknesses. The cat-and-mouse game continues, with the gang using the outsider's ability to read Claude's mind against it so it won't suspect them coming for it in the cave. Unbeknownst to them, Jack is waiting in the wings to protect his master. And when it happens, it happens quick. Howie, the good-hearted defense attorney, Terry's warrior, 
is the first to go out, followed by his private investigator, Alec. Holly remains calm throughout the shootout, more calm than the two cops, um, Ralph and Uni, as they break for a safer location. Jackson, um, or yeah, Jack is hilariously bitten by a rattlesnake. It allows them to get uh, cover, but Uni isn't so lucky as he too is shot. Uh, Ralph and Holly have a quick showdown with the poison Jack. Ralph puts him out of his misery. They enter the cave, and as they pass the corpses of the animals, they enter the Chamber of Sound, which is where the echoed voice of the outsider drifts to them. King has never been one to romanticize evil, and he does not start now. The confrontation with the outsider sees the heroes facing off not against some grand big bad, but a pathetic wretched creature. In earlier works, King had teased and misled us with great grand evils, but in the end, even the grandest among them are nothing but smoke or mirrors, or, to use an illusion appropriate for fans of Wizard and Glass, they're just, you know, the man behind the curtain. So I want to give a spoiler alert for the following books, It, The Stand, and the entirety of the Dark Tower series. Um, So these characters, uh, Pennywise the Clown, which is just one manifestation of the creature known as It, flag um, from the stand, and I'll call him um, Walter Paddock uh, from the conclusion of the, the Dark Tower series, um, along with Mordred and the Crimson King. All of these characters wind up being pathetic. Um, and Leland Gaunt from, from Needful Things, I'll throw him in there. They all, who throughout their books, with the exception of Mordred, I would say, um, all have seemed to be very, very powerful um, but in, in their final moments, they're just wretched, puling, whining, um, pleading creatures. Uh, you know, Flag, you know, was just uh, in, in the stand. We think he's powerful. Um, we think that he's this great grand bag. But he was just um, a scavenger, you know. I mean, he didn't come about in power with society in place. He wasn't that powerful, he had to have nothing short of the end of the world to occur in order for him to scrape his way to the top. And he believed in his own hype. He's a used car salesman that wound up believing in his product and then you know, was suddenly surprised when the transmission on every single one of his cars busted out in the middle of driving. So he isn't as powerful as we thought that he was. And it's no surprise that when push comes to shove, he runs away. Similarly... Um, uh, you know, Walter Paddock, the true character behind Flag, um, you know, is so much of a blowhard. He sees the, he fails to see the danger right in front of him and is, you know, killed in a very ghastly and unnecessary manner that if he had just been as clever as he thought that he was, he, he would have been fine. Mordred is a character that is just a, a whining, pitiful beast the entire time that we met, meet him. And the Crimson King, the supposed Satan of the world of Stephen King, is just a screaming, crazy old man locked up on a balcony on one level of the tower. I mean, so this is what King does with his characters. Um, and it, the, the, the spider, pleads for its life um, in the end. So this is not out of the realm of what King has always presented with his um, characters, his villainous characters. They always wind up to be wretched in some way um, in the end. And the outsider is, is, is no different. I mean, the outsider seems happy to talk to someone, um, unsurprisingly, due to the fact that it's 
hiding in a cave with nothing but a cot, um, a generator, and a living room lamp. The stark, um, sparse imagery is potent and memorable. It, it really, really makes the scene pop. Um, you know, Holly goads it into a confrontation leading to her um, moment of heroism on page uh, 525. And then uh, she says, you take children because you're a child rapist who can't even do it with his penis. You have to use a... He ran at her, his face twisting into an expression of hate that had nothing of Claude Bolton or Terry Maitland in it. This was its own thing, as black and awful as the lower depths where the Jameson twins had finally surrendered their lives. Ralph raised his gun, but Holly stepped into his line of fire before he could get off around. Don't shoot, Ralph, don't shoot. Something else fell, this time something big, big smashing the outsider's cot and cooler, sending shards of mineral sparkling stones spinning across the polished floor. Holly pulled something from a pocket of her suit coat on the side that always sagged. The thing was long and white and stretched as if it contained something heavy. At the same time, she turned on the UV flashlight and shined it in full to the outsider's face. He winced, made a snarling sound, and turned his head, still reaching for her with Claude Bolton's tattooed hands. She drew the white thing crossbody above her small breasts all the way to her shoulder and swung it with all her strength. The loaded end connected with the outsider's head just below the hairline at the temple. What Ralph saw then would haunt his dreams for years to come. The left half of the outsider's head caved in as if it had been made of paper mache rather than bone. The brown eye jumped in its socket. The thing went to its knees and its face seemed to liquefy. Ralph saw a hundred features slide across it in mere seconds, there and gone. High foreheads followed by low ones, bushy eyebrows and ones so blonde they were hardly there. Deep set eyes and ones that bulged, lips both wide and thin. Buck teeth protruded, then disappeared, chins jutted and sank. Yet the last face, the one that lingered longest, almost certainly the outsider's true face, was utterly nondescript. It was the face of anyone you might pass on the street, seen at one moment and forgotten the next. Holly swung again, striking the cheekbone this time and driving the forgettable face into a hideous crescent. It looked like something out of an insane children's book. In the end, it's nothing, Ralph thought. Nobody. What looked like Claude, what looked like Terry, what looked like Heath Holmes, nothing. Only false fronts, only stage dressing. Reddish, worm-like things began to pour from the hole in the outsider's head, from its nose, from the cramped teardrop, which was all that remained of its unsteady mouth. The worms fell to the stone floor of the chamber of sound in a squirming flood. Claude Bolton's body first began to tremble, then to buck, then to shrivel inside its clothes. Holly dropped the flashlight and raised the white thing over her head. It was a sock, Ralph saw, a man's long white athletic sock, now holding it in both hands. She brought it down one final time, crashing it into the top of the thing's head. Its face split down the middle like a rotted gourd. There was no brain in the cat, um, cavity, thus revealed only a writhing nest of those worms, inescapably reminding Ralph of the maggots he had discovered in that long-ago cantaloupe. Those already released were squirming across the floor towards Holly's feet. She backed away from them, ran into Ralph, then buckled at the knees. He grabbed her up and held her up. All the color had left her face. Tears spilled down her cheeks. That's nasty. Um, 
but it's great. I mean, Holly is the one, you know. As soon as King, uh, you know, introduced Holly into it, we should have known that Holly was going to be the one to, you know, save the day and step up. And this has always been Holly. This is what Holly did um, in Mr. Mercedes, right? She, not Bill, was the one to take out um, Brady Hartsfield in very similar fashion. Um, And this is a mirror uh, scene with, again, going up against this predator... Um, this this weak, wretched predator, you know, Ralph was the one that um, wanted to bring this one to justice. But in the end, it was um, it was really Holly that did it. And then from there, it's just the cleanup, you know, uh, the cleanup of the story, um, just figuring out the story that they're they're gonna tell. Um, you know, Jeannie taking charge and setting it right with Marcy um, and doing what they can to redeem. Uh, the the memory of Terry Maitland, you know. So our characters just deal with that. They deal with the fallout, clearing Terry's name, and then the novel just concludes with Ralph, uh, most likely speaking for Stephen King and the fans, saying goodbye to Holly and saying that he loves her. I mean, not in a romantic way, and it's nothing that she actually hears, but he states it all the same, which feels like an ending, not really to this book, but to this character. I can't help but ask why. What makes this the end of Holly's story? Other than King has a soft spot for her and doesn't want her to suffer or go through these um, tribulations anymore. Um, If that's the case, I think that that's a missed opportunity. I'm going to get into it um, in a little bit. Um, So before I get into the Stephen Kingisms and my closing thoughts, I want to talk about the characters here of Terry and Ralph. So like I had said, King tricks you into thinking that this is Terry's story, but by the end, you realize that this truly is Ralph's story. And King handles it so deftly that you don't really notice the handoff or the fact that it strays from what what you thought that it was, the story of a man fighting to redeem himself in the eyes of the public to a story of a man redeeming another in order to find his own redemption. And this fits because this is a story about doubles. Therefore, it makes sense that we have double protagonists um, and, and we see this mirroring occur throughout, you know, the, the entire um, story. I mean, especially with the fact that Holly comes, you know, roaring in with her own baggage um, into a um, story that mirrors the stories that she previously had been in with a supernatural entity that doesn't seem, you know, unable to die, that's able to take on different faces in different ways, that seems to have a supernatural reach of possessing people. Um, and um, doing so while working with a, um, a cop who in some way had failed and, and wants to find redemption. So, I mean, King knows what he's doing here, and he does it extremely well. So, guys, what I want to get into now is um, the closing thoughts. We're just about an hour over, and I want to start, you know, wrapping up... Um, my thoughts. So this, The Outsider, is a crime story by the way of, of Stephen King. So, you know, he has been dabbling in the crime genre for a while now. Um, he started, you know, you could really start to see him teasing it and, and starting to grow really interested in it with um, A Good Marriage. And then from A Good Marriage, we saw him dive right in with Mr. Mercedes Finders Keepers and End of Watch. Um, And then he continues that here. 
you know, the, the first quarter of this novel, there's only a, a, a like a taste of supernatural, just like a, a smack. I mean, it isn't the main course. It really feels like an interesting, captivating, um, you know, thrilling crime mystery. And then, of course, you know, he winds up abandoning that, or not even abandoning it, but just dovetailing it. And it's actually, it feels natural as it segues from its origins as a crime thriller to, you know, his more traditional horror fare. Um, and to me, this is a, a perfect blend of both of the genres. The, the ratio of crime to horror is exactly what he wants and the way the horror winds up coming from it the our heroes arrive at the horror they come to it they seek it out um it isn't i mean it it does deal with the outsider who is victimizing uh you know young children but the heroes in solving the crime they happen upon the the um the villain or the monster rather than the villain or the monster preying upon them. So it's, it's a nice inverse. It's different. It's a different feeling Stephen King book. And I love the fact that in his sixties or seventies at this point, the man is still trying new things and experimenting. And that is so inspiring. Now I have long talked about my adoration of the character, Alan Pangborn and how I've always believed that there is a missed opportunity for Stephen King to have built a series of novels like um, the Repairman Jack novels or the um, uh, Agent Pendergast novels uh, around Alan Pangborn, the way that um, F. Paul Wilson and uh, uh, Lincoln and Child, um, Preston and Child were were able to do with their respective characters. Um, But here... You know, so I, I always wanted, you know, Alan Pangborn to be solving these these Castle Rock mysteries that were, of course, always had a, a supernatural tinge. And so by the time our characters of Ralph and Holly wind up finding themselves in, um, you know, the, the, the giant cave at the end, um, in the Echo Cave, um, oh, what's the name of it? I can't remember the name of it. But, uh, and, and they're facing off against the outsider. It, to me, it just hit, it slammed home that all this time, what I wanted, he's giving it to me now. He created a vehicle that could allow, and this is why I I wonder why he decided to say goodbye to Holly the way that he did at the end of this book, because this feels to me like it could be the beginning of, um, of Holly's continued investigations into cases that wind up having um, a supernatural bent. And if Holly is what I originally wanted from the Alan Pangborn character, then I'm fine with that. Then I think that that's great. I, I think that there is room for that. I think that there is a market for... Sorry, I'm hearing something in my backyard. Um, I think that there is a market for, um, for, for these types of characters and mysteries um, and uh, that blend of crime and... Uh, supernatural, it exists. You know, I mean, this is what John Connolly books are. So for those of you who haven't read John Connolly books, if you liked The Outsider and you like crime fiction and you like the supernatural 
and you like Stephen King, you're going to love John Connolly, who writes about this hard-boiled, um, haunted, literally, um, private detective by the name of Charlie Parker, who lives in Maine and encounters all sorts of demonic and supernatural types of criminals um, and these really spooky cases. And he has this crazy supporting cast of um, law enforcement and shadowy figures and his two best friends and confidants are these wise cracking um, high level assassins. It's a high octane, hard boiled, pulpish joyride every time you step into the world of uh, Charlie Parker and John Connolly's texts and his prose. It's very lyrical. It can be very, you know, it, it can be as light as a feather or it can be as hard as a punch made out of granite. He has that perfect blend. And as I was reading this, that like I talked about that ratio, that, that balance between the crime and the supernatural, this is what John Connolly does with every one of his books. So if this left you wanting more, you don't have to go far. Just stay in the same bookstore that you're in. Just head on over to the mystery section, look for John Connolly, and pick up a book. Um, you can't go wrong because the Charlie Parker books are phenomenal. And also as I was reading this, and I'm not saying this because I have a concurrent podcast all about Twin Peaks, and maybe it is because I, you know, am so focused on Twin Peaks right now and my mind is, well, it's not that I ever wasn't focused on Twin Peaks, but it's just maybe because I'm just marinating it and I have been for over a year now, um, every single day, um, since, uh, Twin Peaks return, uh, hit the air, um, but this felt very Twin Peaks, the return to me. Uh, I mean, we had doppelgangers. We had detectives trying to solve supernatural cases. We had a creature that fed off of pain and sorrow. Um, we had just our, our detectives very much living in a real world that started to slip away from underneath them. And our supernatural characters stood out in stark contrast to the juxtaposition of their otherworldliness set against the backdrop of, you know, everyday recognizable reality. This to me felt very much what Lynch and Frost had been working on um, with Twin Peaks to return. I mean, and there is even a segment that um, spoke to me of classic Twin Peaks, season two Twin Peaks, um, to be uh, to be specific, there is a, a a speech, a question, a conversation between um, our characters in the second season after the um, after we thought or our characters thought that the villain had been vanquished, um, and they have a conversation around the supernatural qualities of it. Um, you know, and and you know the Albert. Um, played by Miguel Ferrar, you know, questions what Bob is. Bob is a malicious entity. Um, and he says, maybe that's all Bob is. Bob is the evil that men do. And um, there's a similar uh, conversation that occurs within The Outsider beginning on um, page 477. 
Listen to me, I know it's crazy, but is the idea of El Cuco any more inexplicable than some of the terrible things that happen in the world? Not natural disasters or accidents, I'm talking about the things that some people do to others. Wasn't Ted Bunny just a version of El Cuco? A shapeshifter with one face for the people he knew and another for the women he killed? The last thing those women saw was his other face, his inside face, the face of El Cuco. There are others. They walk among us. You know what they do. They're aliens. Monsters beyond their understanding. Yet you believe in them. You've put some of them away. Maybe seen some of them executed. He was silent, thinking about this. Let me ask you a question, she said. Suppose it had been Terry Maitland who killed the child and tore off his flesh and put a branch up inside him. Would he be any less inexplicable than the thing that might be hiding in that cave? Would you be able to say... I understand that darkness and evil was hiding behind the mask of the boy's athletic coach and good community citizen. I know exactly what made him do it. No, I've arrested men who have done terrible things, and a woman who drowned her baby daughter in the bathtub, and I've never understood. Most times they don't understand themselves. No more than I, than I understood why Brady Hartsfeld set out to kill himself at a concert and take a thousand or more innocent children with him. What I'm asking for is simple. Believe in this. If only for the next 24 hours. Can you do that? Um, so that to me, it's just that that's a perfect encapsulation that this is so much bigger than just a supernatural story. The outsider, it exists. I mean, it is out there. Um, there isn't a day that goes by and I talked about, you know, how popular true crime is right now and it's all revolving around monsters, literal monsters that are walking uh, among us. Okay, guys. Um, so, um, we have come to our Stephen Kingisms, um, the first of which is The Dead Child. Now, this, of course, we have seen before in many Stephen King novels, including It, Black House, Dr. Sleep, Green Mile, to name a few. We have a character, at one point, um, and this is a small one, Gerald. Um, Miss Arlene Stanhope recounts seeing The Dead Child outside of a store called Gerald's, um, and I doubt that Stephen King can write the word Gerald without thinking Gerald's game. Um, timely and relevant. Um, and this is, this is a, a different kind of uh, Stephen Kingism. Now, King has been publishing since 1974, but he's certainly not dusty. From the Black Lives Matter reference to the inclusion of a minor Middle Eastern character named Bibel Patel, he keeps himself on the left side of history. And what better way to preach American inclusivity than have a child of Middle Eastern descent play a game as identifiable with the American dream itself as baseball? Apotheosis. Um, Howie Gold uses the term apotheosis, which um, King famously used in The Gunslinger. Number five, we have bathroom horror. The outsider visits Detective Jack Hoskins in the bathroom, which we have uh, seen before. The bathroom is not a safe place if you are a Stephen King character, um, as we have seen in Dreamcatcher and The Night Flyer, among others. Number six, we have the villain's lackey. Um, some of our greatest villains have had lackeys to do their bidding, um, which have included uh, the Crimson King um, using Ed Deepno. We have the Trash Can Man being used by Flag, Henry Bowers being used by It, the TikTok Man being used by um, Flag, Ace Merrill being used by uh, Leland Gaunt, just to name a few. Number seven is a red-lipped villain. Um, this has been a way that King has described his villains um, before in the past. Uh, usually, 
around another shape-shifting villain, um, another monster that has, oh, um, flitted throughout King's works, um, most famously known as Flag. And let's see, number eight is vampires. El Cuco, the outsider, is a type of vampire which we have seen throughout many of Stephen King's works, whether it be Salem's Lot or the Library Policeman, Little Sisters of Illuria, the True Knot from Dr. Sleep. Then we have caves. Uh, it's not the first time that our characters have battled an ancient evil um, in a cave. Uh, most famously, that occurred with the China Pit in Desperation. And then we have our characters descending into the dark to combat shape-shifting evil. Um, most famously, uh, the Losers Club head into the sewers of Derry, Maine to confront it. Um, here we have... Um, our characters descending into a cave to confront the outsider, and I just mentioned desperation. And then we have Easter eggs. The the biggest, of course, is Finders Keepers, uh, Bill Hodges, Holly Gibney. Um, you know, this is not King's first story of detectives trying to solve a case. The most famous, of course, is being the characters from Mr. Mercedes trilogy, and you know, Holly's inclusion is such a nice treat. Number two is Ka. Um. And he doesn't spend much time with it, but the outsider mentions it in one of his monologues at the end. Then we have number three, the white. It's not referenced by name, but what Holly describes at the end of the book is clearly what King had been referring to as the white for decades. There's a force for good in the world, he writes. That's something else I believe. Partly so I don't go crazy when I think of all the awful things that happened, I guess, but it also seems to bear it out, wouldn't you say? Not just here, but everywhere. There's some force that tries to restore the balance when the bad dreams come, Ralph. Try to remember that little scrap of paper. So, guys, um, this novel um, was a delight. I guess if you want to describe a monster that murders children and an innocent man whose life was ruined, a delight. But, I mean, it, it really is. Uh, in, in his later years, King has shown that he is still willing to pull no punches. Um, he goes there... Um, when he needs to, to tell a good yarn. And I believe that this was a very good yarn. Um, and I believe that it's relevant. I mean, I think that there is something to be said about a story in 2018 in which a monster of Mexican descent arrives in white bread suburbia to terrorize it. Um, and it's called The Outsider. So I'm not saying that Stephen King believes that Mexicans are evil, but I believe that he is shining a light on um, a stereotype that has permeated our country for the last couple of years where the, the concept of the other um, really has been vilified. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if our, our quartet wanted to build a wall to keep The Outsider out. <laughs> Um, but I, I do believe this is where there's a little bit of satire um, mixed into the ingredients of this story by focusing so much on the Mexi Mexican heritage of, of this creature um, and, and, and placing this heritage within a very politicized present. Um, I, I believe that he's making a, a commentary here on one level his novel is like the tower itself. It exists on multiple levels. And so on one level, um, it is just a, a rip in yarn that happens to be drawing from some Mexican myth. Um, but then there is another level where he is 
um, using the the myth um, to propel a satire um, and a commentary on some heated political rhetoric um, that is making life very, very difficult for people that don't look like Terry Maitland. There is a fear out there that Mexicans, uh, to quote South Park, are going to come and take our jobs. Um, And uh, that fear is encapsulated by this creature, the outsider, um, who comes into communities and just absolutely destroys it. Um, So I, I believe that King was able to capture that fear that does grip a lot of Americans right now. Um, and I think if read, but he does it in such a way where it's not overt enough to confirm these, anyone that does have that fear, I, it's not overt enough to confirm those fears. But for anyone that um, recognizes it, um, you, you'll realize that it is a, a wink and a commentary and a condemnation on on having that fear in the first place. So, guys, I loved this conversation. I'm glad that I was able to get this out um, this weekend. Um, and next week, I am going to continue my examination of all the short stories I didn't get around to the first time around. Um, so I will be getting to Nightmares and Dreamscapes, uh, which is which is a fun one. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and I really enjoyed um, heading back into the world of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And the following week, um, I will be reviewing the adaptation of Dolan's Cadillac. So there's a couple good weeks um, ahead of us. And before you know it, it's going to be summer, guys. And, you know, the one... One thing that I love about summer is staying inside and watching television. Um, And that's exactly what's going to happen this summer because Castle Rock will be coming. And we just got another trailer not too long ago in which we have Terry O'Quinn of Lost Fame and who is just one of television and movies, great supporting characters who has such a recognizable and kindly face at times and a malicious and sinister face in others. And he is narrating the, the trailer. And it just places you in this um, uh, re-envisioned town of of Castle Rock. And I'm telling you guys, I'm really looking forward to heading out to Castle Rock and sifting through all the Easter eggs and exploring this world um, with all of you. So once Castle Rock hits, I will be reviewing each of the episodes um, when they come out. And I, at some point, will be talking about all of the Mr. Mercedes episodes. And then I've got all of the uh, lock and key issues that I'm going to uh, be um, reviewing. And big news on the lock and key front. So after Hulu turned it down, it got chopped around and it wound up at Netflix. Netflix picked it up. Um, They are sticking with Carlton Cuse as showrunner, which... Going back to Lost, I think that that's a good idea. Carlton Cuse, at his worst, um, is still really good. Okay, Carlton Cuse, at his best, when he um, is working with someone that has a very, very strong vision, he's able to help guide the ship. Cuse and Lindelof worked magic together, um, in my estimation, and Lindelof has just gone on to just do incredible things. And Cuse, you know, for for his to his credit, um, Bates Motel was such a fun ride. I enjoyed that pulpy camp um, 
semi-comic uh, soap opera on a weekly basis for the, the five or so years that it was on. And I, the man just knows how to run a show. So I'm really looking forward to seeing him run the, the, the story of, of Key House in Lovecraft, Massachusetts with the Locke children and uh, the malicious Dodge. And I can't wait to talk about each episode or each issue um, at some point um, as I dive into my review of IDW's incredible, incredible comic. So there's a lot of good stuff to look forward to. And then um, in the uh, fall, we're going to have Stephen King's next book, a novella set in Castle Rock called Elevation, and it's going to be a, a palate cleanser to the heaviness of The Outsider, and it's going to be a, a little snippet of small town life in one of his most uh, famous locales um, that might put a smile on your face, might give you a chuckle, and might warm your heart, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay, guys, so um, at basically an hour and a half. That's all that I've got. But like I've said before, if you have any thoughts, send them my way to uh, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. If you have a couple minutes on your hands, then head on over to iTunes, leave a review. And if you are fans of David Lynch or you want to you know, see what my thoughts are on Twin Peaks, then subscribe to Hanging with Agent Cooper, a weekly Twin Peaks The Return podcast in which I publish a review of each of the Twin Peaks episodes on the one-year anniversary of when the episode first aired in uh, 2017. So uh, there's a lot of good stuff uh, about coming from me this summer with some um, talking about fun um, horror horror dipped uh examples of pop culture so thank you everyone for listening and i'll see you here next week where m-o-o-n spells stephen king cast